This is The Straight Dope, episode 60. It's not you, it's me. I want to talk a little bit about user error because I've tested a lot of stuff, but the way I test things is for my particular uses, so it's not always extremely thorough. I test things until they fail, and if they don't fail, I'll keep using them. If they do fail, I stop using them. And over the years of testing and learning trial and error, there's been a lot of things that I have done to cause problems. And I think it's funny when you find an issue and you bring it up to the manufacturer, you bring it up to somebody else, people do like to point their fingers uh, at, at someone else. And it's even more fun when I do a lot of this and realize that, in fact, it was me and not necessarily the equipment that failed. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and some of my experiences over the last uh, many years uh, trying to stumble forward because, you know, people like to joke around about fuck around and find out, but that is something that I like to do. I like to just get something and figure out what I can do with it by screwing around and messing with it rather than uh, necessarily taking a course. And a lot of the shooting precision competition world, the way I entered it, I utilized that process more than I probably should have, and that makes for some funny stories. So anyway, we're going to get on to it, and some of this, you're going to roll your eyes, scratch your head, and you've probably heard of it before, but I just want to remind you that these are all things that I have done, and I'm not necessarily going to throw people that did have problems under the bus, more so than just say that there's a lot of times when user error is the answer, and you may or may not, um, you may or may not know that, right? So my very first competition, uh, I borrowed a rifle, and I went out, and I shot this competition, and we had done the zero check, chronograph, uh, you know, we did all that stuff, I'd never used a Kestrel with a, a B in it, and, and in fact, um, Paul Higley who got second place in the world at the last competition, he was there and he helped me, um, you know, get the speed data and chronograph and enter the profile into this barrel as a loner from the NRL. And um, so that's pretty cool, but that has nothing to do with my error. It just uh, is a shout out to Paul for kicking ass over in France and uh, representing that guy is pretty awesome. And uh, he's he's often on Morgan King's podcast, so if you don't listen to that, go check him out because Paul's a good guy to listen to, and, and so is Morgan. Anyway, um, we did all of our zero stuff, and then they had zero targets to check and confirm dope out to about like 1,500 yards or something like that. So when when the day was done, the zero day was done, I was a rev up, and I didn't dial my turrets back down to zero. So my very first stage, I didn't see any of my misses, I got a zero on the stage, but, but then it turned out that, that I was a rev up. And so, um, it's not uncommon when you're shooting at long ranges for you to exceed the revolution count on your turrets. And so, uh, if you're not careful now, some people have zero stops, some people don't have zero stops, but understanding when it's time to put your turrets back to zero is important because my very first precision rifle stage at my very first competition, I got a zero and missed, not only missed, but just had no idea where the bullets were going. People were curious whether, I mean, there, there was all sorts of explanations, but that was the uh, final answer was I was I was a rev up and uh, shooting to about 1,500 yards instead of to about 300 yards. And um, there's not much else to say about that. Now, at Subsequent stages, when I've got zeros and no answer and not been a rev up, uh, I had in the past more than once uh, wrote down the wrong stage dope on my dope card, went up, you know, it was a five target, two position stage, and I the next day was a five target, two position stage, and so by all intents and purposes, like it looked and read and sounded like it with the stage brief and everything, it just turned out that it was the wrong stage. And so making sure that the actual stage number matches the actual stage that you're on can avoid that. Now, as a match director or something like that, you can avoid some of those confusions by not having essentially identical stages back to back. Um, but it's it's on the shooter, not on the match director. On the other hand, like there's there's probably ways to not go up to the wrong 
or to the right stage with the wrong stages information written down. And in the particular time where this really stood out, was it was cold, rainy, snowy. And I went back to the truck um, and came back, wrote down my stuff, went to the stage, got the stage brief, made sense, shot it, didn't see anything, and then, and then realized, like, you know, it was, I was a stage off. Um, so that, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. Now let's talk about, let's talk about some equipment stuff because recently, uh, this has come back up and it, it comes up from time to time for me and it started and it's never seemed to totally go away and there are fixes to it, but some of it, um, may or may not be on the user, but for me, for sure, it started as a user problem. The idea of over-tightening rings, caps, mounts, and, and other threads. Most of the devices that we're using when we're shooting have tolerances or specs that you tighten them to, but, but you don't, well, I didn't at first realize that all of those specs were different and that finger tightening or uh, because I'm a rock climber, I can develop quite a bit of torque with my forms. I say, oh, well, hand tighten it. And then you completely just strip the whole thing out. At the time, I was using um, a U.S. Optics that the device to tighten the turrets when you spin the um, the zero back to zero was this little collar that you stuck on top, and then you hand tightened it. And I had popped the entire Evolution turret right off the scope, um, which is a funny story because when I sent it back to be fixed, they sent it back to me with instead of mills, they sent a, the internal mechanism on my mill scope came back as a MOA one and that was a head scratcher for a while uh, but you can over tighten that stuff and if you do uh, it can it, obviously it can cause a lot of problems and one of the problems that I have seen and heard of from scope manufacturers is that there's a lot of machinery in the tubes which would obviously make sense that slide back and forth and if you over tighten the rings on the tube of a scope, you can throw off how that stuff slides and moves around and influence the mechanics by which you focus, adjust your parallax, adjust your elevation. And so you can, you can induce a lot of problems with how your scope works by not tightening your rings appropriately and evenly. And I've even heard uh, other companies pointing fingers at other companies that the width of the rings themselves can influence the pressure that it exerts on the tubes. But then I have to heard from ring companies that the tubes themselves may or may not be concentric, and then that kind of creates this vicious cycle of who's got the best tolerances in terms of concentricity and pressure and tolerance between the mechanisms inside the tube versus outside the tube. Um, all I know is that you can induce problems with your scope by having the rings too tight. You can also induce problems with your scope by having the rings too loose because it'll become loose and slide around when you, uh, when you shoot. And I've had rings that were too loose slide and the scope slid, you know, based on recoil, the, the, you know, the rifle came back, the scope went forward and hit the end, but kind of got stuck there. And I didn't realize that it was loose, but kind of stuck wedged forward. And, and that took a couple days to figure out what was happening there because it, by all inspection, it appeared to be, uh, to be pretty good. Now, I was testing a newer scope, and I didn't tighten down the caps all the way, and the ring spun at a local competition, and that was frustrating, but it also taught me that knowing a way to get yourself back to zero when your turrets spin or your caps spin, and I had heard a rumor that at the International Comp at France, somebody may have been... Uh, spinning people's windage and elevation knobs. And, and I think that, um, you know, I had heard stories about that happening here in the past um, years ago. And one way to quickly resolve that would be to know where your Mac, where your zero was relative to your max uh, elevation, top or bottom, so that you can just quickly put your stuff back to zero without worrying about it once you realize something, something was off. Um, when it comes to mounts, uh, QD mounts always have looser tolerances than ones that, that clamp down. And so those mounts uh, are important to understand how they, how they stick on and make sure that you're putting them on in a way that accounts for recoil so that they don't, if they're not super tight, they're pressed up or back against the rail of your scope. But I've also seen rails come off of rifles themselves, like the entire rails. And 
although that hasn't happened to me directly, I have seen them loose, and I usually go through and check the torques now on most of the parts of the rifle, but when I don't, I discover the ones that I don't check because eventually something comes loose. Now, I don't know if it's here in Colorado because things get hot and then cold and then hot and then cold. You know, if my house is 70 and it's 32 outside and I go, you know, from my house to the range to the house to the range or I go to Montana or Idaho and take the guns out shooting in the snow on snowmobiles and it's negative 20 degrees, negative 10 degrees, and then go in the house and it's 70 and go back and forth, back and forth. If that heating cooling cycle is speeding things up, uh, it could be. We have big temperature swings, and but I have seen things come loose faster than I would have expected. Now, the things that come loose and have come loose on me are the scope turret caps. I have had, after a range day, kind of scratching my head why my accuracy and zero seem to be a little bit off sometimes, depending on the position, only to put my rifle in the rifle case. And when I got home, I noticed the action screws fell out into the case. So one of my action screws came loose and came out, and that it was the front action screw. And in certain positions, my zero was different than in other positions, which is unusual for me because I'm obsessive about positions. turned out I didn't check the torque um, on the action screws in the action, which, you know, why, why, really, why, why would you have to do that every single time? And I guess that's the answer, is we get complacent, and we don't, but, but at some point, you could become overly obsessive about checking everything. And, and when do you stop doing that? But that has happened to me. And so from time to time, I'll check the torque on the action in the stock or the chassis that I'm using. Now, what's interesting is that I do swap out chassis. You know, I only have so many actions. And I swap chassis stocks. And I swap barrels and scopes a lot because I like to do that type of testing to see, okay, well, you know, if I shoot this for a couple of days, I'm going to change it up and use a different combination. So I get familiar with different balances, different weights, different scopes, different settings. And so I do that a lot uh, in, in my training. But this particular instance where the action screw actually fell out, it was during the winter. And I had just been, been doing... Um, kind of positional stuff so I didn't swap out the gear as much and I think that heating cooling cycle just caused it to back itself out because 65 inch pounds is is quite a bit in an action to to come out anyway um that has happened and I've heard of that happening before and I've seen other people's action screws fall out um and I have seen other people's rails come off their rifle. That's why I like actions with uh, integrated rail. Anything that's integrated, I'm probably going to gravitate towards versus having p- tolerances that can stack. And so uh, we'll, we'll get to that We'll get to that uh, in a second. But that, that also goes to the point where, um, you know, I have lone peak actions and I have impact actions. And a lot of times I compare the two, and a lot of times a lot of people compare those as being um, pr- fairly equivalent in terms of quality the few differences that are between them are the differences that each have their own issue that I've had an issue with each. So the impact has a, uh, um, what would you, uh, a trigger shoe, or right? It's a ring that the pins for the trigger go into that, and then you screw that whole contraption into your action. And I've had that back off to the point where the trigger wouldn't reset or fire. But it took a sec to realize what was happening. I just thought maybe the trigger had broke because I have broke triggers in the past. Now, the triggers that I broke in the past, some were just bad triggers. But I broke one for sure because of user error. And I'll get to that in a sec. But the actions, integrated rails, absolutely. If, if you can afford and can get a rail that's integral to your action, of course, your rail's not going to fall off your action, and so then you don't need to worry about it. But if you have to screw in your trigger guard or your trigger shoe or whatever that is, and you don't check it from time to time, um, I have had the instance where that backed off and the trigger stopped working. And so then to get it to work again, you'd have to take it out of the action or take it out of the chassis and then know that when that happened, it could be that the trigger went out, but it could just be that the trigger thing backed out of the action a little bit because of heating and cooling, and you need to torque that down. Now you could, you you probably could put in Loctite, and you could probably do a lot of other things. And I'm not I'm not necessarily saying um, what the right answer is. I'm just saying that here's things that I have seen because I did it, and it was my 
fault. Now, the other thing is that when I started to shoot, um, I was taught by guys who were taught to run the bolt hard and fast. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a school that uh, that a lot of people, they run the bolt really hard and fast. They shoot, run the bolt, get ready to shoot again. And they run it very hard. And it hits the back of the um, action pretty hard. And so these are being stopped on the bolt release. And in the, the, um, the Lone Peak action, the pin for some reason, comes out easier or breaks easier than the one on the impact. And so, uh, but but they have, you could put, you put the trigger directly into the action, so you're not going to have that come loose because the pins go in. What happened to me on the Lone Peak is that I slammed it so hard and so repetitively that the pin fell out and the bolt stop came out, but I didn't realize that the bolt release had come out. So then when I was cycling the bolt, I was the bolt was just coming out of the action, and that causes problems. Uh, in its own right, and that was user error, and it just took some modifying how I cycled my bolt so that I didn't really slam it into the rear anymore, and I haven't had that problem since. But my diagnosis wasn't that there was something wrong with the action, is that I was being too hard on something that didn't need to be so hard on and inducing an issue. Um, now, it wasn't an issue that wasn't solvable, and it didn't, you know, it wasn't a deal breaker, but in retrospect, it was my fault for doing something that. I needed to identify and fix, but the only way to identify and fix it was to run the bolt so hard and fast that eventually it broke the pin that fell out the bolt stop that when I cycled it, the bolt stop came off. Now, another one that was weird with the bolt, I wasn't able to load a magazine. I wasn't able to run my bolt and pick up a round, and it was running back and it was stopping, but what, was, what happened was my length of pull, the XLR chassis have a tube, and then the whole buttstock contraption slides over the tube, like kind of like an AR um, and that contraption got loose and the length of pull slid forward to the point where the bolt was hitting the cheek riser and stopping. And it wasn't the bolt stop of the action, but it was the cheek riser. But I didn't realize that it was, it was still tight enough where I couldn't move it by hand. But on recoil, it was getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where it couldn't cycle the bolt and pick up a round. And that that caused problems because you know obviously when I ran the bolt it didn't pick up a round I dropped the magazine I looked I put in the magazine I you know single fed but I couldn't you know wouldn't it wouldn't cycle the bolt and it was an issue of that buttstock creeping forward on recoil to the point where then it got in the way of being able to cycle your bolt itself now that happened once and since then I make sure that that's tight and. Um, backed off enough where I can get kind of my thumb behind the bolt, but I also changed how I run my bolt now. And I put my thumb behind the bolt and I keep it there. So now I would be able to feel that if something hit the back of it. And there are some cheek risers or, or combs or whatever you want to call it that um, do get in the way and my thumb kind of hits it. So I have to adjust those. Uh, the one that is probably the worst is the ATX comb. For some reason that is very weird to adjust but the position of the bolt coming in with that riser but but anyway you adjust the height so that it works fine and then it doesn't hit your hit your thumb anymore um and and other bolts and but but it, that's not a user i mean that, obviously that's a user error i don't want to get into the equipment particular nuances because equipment is equipment but user error is is the focus of this um so Pay attention to the torques and settings. And so we talked about the action. We got the trigger shoe if you're using an impact, and we got the bolt stop knob uh, pin if you're talking about a lone peak. We got the integrated rail because the rail could fall off. Um, and then I mentioned the trigger. I was shooting, I was fireforming uh, Lapua 223 into 223AI. And when I was doing that, I was getting some failure to shoot. But if I cycled the bolt again, Oftentimes, it would shoot, but when it did that, it would pierce the primers, and so I didn't think much of it other than, okay, it didn't shoot. I'm going to just rack the bolt again, or I'm going to cycle the, the I'm going to reset the trigger of the firing pin, and I'm going to shoot it again, and so I was, I was blowing about every fifth primer, and eventually, not only did that damage the firing pin, but the gas blowing back broke the sear of the trigger. And I thought, oh, the trigger broke. It must have, you know, it must have been a problem. But then looking into it more, you know, I realized that that really 
it was my fault because I was blowing primer. And so all that pressure and gas was coming back and being directed onto the sear of the trigger. And so if you're piercing primers and just continuing to do it willy-nilly because you're fire forming or something like that, uh, it's probably not a good idea uh, to do that because you can break a trigger and a firing pin. And then that firing pin went on to cause problems and pierce primers in other... Um, other guns because it had damaged the tip of the firing pin. So that was causing multiple problems and it caused a cascade of issues that initially were traced back to me being the source of the problem by doing something I shouldn't have been doing um, to begin with. Okay, so let's see. I've, I wrote down a little bit of uh, things here. So Kestrel stuff. There is a lot of user error stuff with Kestrel. And people talk about, okay, well, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. But um, it's traced back to, most of it's traced back to user error, right? You inputted the wrong data. You had it in the wrong field. You had something or other. So what do I see a lot of? People going between meters and yards. If I had somebody borrow my Kestrel, they're like, hey, I want to put in my gun profile. So they did that. They're like, oh, you need to do this update. So, so they decided to update my Kestrel while we're at the range so they could put in their gun profile, but it reset all the settings. And um, when I got it back, everything was reset and deleted, and it was set to meters and not yards, and it was set to MOA and not mills. And since then, I have noticed multiple times that I have accidentally been on meters versus yards, and I've been on the wrong gun profile and had questions about that. But I have also seen a big problem when I'm watching other people and trying to diagnose their errors with the Kestrel, is there's a setting where you can have it auto-populate, like the direction of fire and the direction of wind. And there's like a little black triangle that pops up. Now, I don't do that, so I wasn't even aware that it was, it was doing that. I wasn't aware that it was a problem, but they're holding up the direction of fire, and then they were holding up the direction of wind, and, and then putting the Kestrel either like in a pocket on their tripod or on their chest or something where they could... They could then refer back to the data because they inputted the range and they captured the... But instead of capturing it, there was the auto-update direction uh, setting on those. Well, the problem is when the Kestrel came off the target or came out of the wind to get ready to shoot, so did the directions that the device was facing. And the directions that the device was facing turned out to be holding the wind in the wrong direction and probably accounting for a direction of fire that wasn't necessarily the direction of fire that was actually taking place. But, but I think more significant was they captured the wind speed and direction, and it was auto-updating when that wind speed and direction got put onto their, um, onto their tripod. And since then, I've seen that multiple times where the setting was auto-updating, and then they look back at their Kestrel, and they go, okay, the wind's changed. They shoot. The wind didn't really change, but the Kestrel thought it did. And so I take it off of all of those auto-update auto um, settings and, and try to do things as manual as possible with that as a reference, right? I think, I think analog is the future for a lot of field shooting stuff, but you need the digital stuff to train you. And so I train with a Kestrel all the time. I train with as much digital stuff as I can to develop the paper and pencil techniques tricks and knowledge that can then be as analog as possible. And I think that even though that puts a lot on your shoulders as being the person that's making the decisions, it also takes away a lot of bumping the wrong gun profile, the wrong direction of fire, the wrong wind, the wrong whatever. And um, that cycle that you go through not only teaches you gear familiarity, but it also teaches you whether your systems are becoming more analog and intuitive. And I like that process, obviously. I like to talk about it, think about it, and I appreciate and love my technology, but in the field, I would like to be able to be without that technology and understand that I have close to technologically accurate data in my head or on my hard data card because I've thoroughly studied that stuff. But it's very easy to screw up. Now, with Kestrels, one thing that I have done, right? So um, you've probably seen people... If you see me, I'm holding up a Kestrel all the time because I'm always measuring the wind because it's something that I'm a little bit obsessed with. And it may or may not directly relate to the shooting that I'm going to do right now, but I just like to hold up a Kestrel and see how 
fast the wind's going and what direction I think it's coming from and what the terrain I think is doing to the wind. And if you see me not at a range, I might even have a kestrel and dorking out and doing that kind of stuff. But the other one is that, uh, you know, it gets hot. And so if you put your kestrel down, the temperature sensor and all that stuff is picking up a different temperature because the device is heating up. So picking it up and spinning it around in the air can help kind of bring it back to the average environmental characteristics. And so I spin the kestrel around and you see people spinning their kestrels around. Um, I was doing that walking around talking and I was spinning the kestrel pretty aggressively out to my side and I rotated and I rotated and spun the kestrel like a nunchuck right into my truck and it exploded. So you want to be careful when you're spinning your kestrel around that you're not near something that when it hits it, you're either going to hurt that object or person or you're not going to completely um, demolish your kestrel and have it explode into a bunch of little parts. Uh, it actually still works, um, and I've got most of it pieced back together, but it doesn't look really sexy uh, and stuff like that. But but it is a, that is a user error, and it didn't work for a while, but, but um, I was able to mess with it, and it does work, but I also have backup kestrels that I use, but you spend so much money on something like that that I just don't even want to throw it away. So I just, I have it here, and I screw around with it, and I, the calculator, the ballistic calculator and software on the inside works good. All of the other stuff does not work good. Like, it doesn't give you accurate wind speed anymore. It doesn't give you accurate temperature, pressure data, and stuff like that, but uh, that doesn't matter. Um, what matters is it was my fault, and I destroyed a kestrel by spinning it into... Uh, my truck, I actually cracked a window uh, at the same time. So, um, so yeah, that, that is a user error issue uh, from spinning my Kestrel into my truck. The, um, let's see, let's go down. I have like a little, uh, a little thing of, of issues. Now, they're not in any particular order, but I do have like when I was first learning to hand load, I don't, I don't really like hand loading. Um, it's interesting. I'm going to start a project soon with hand loading only because I've had some issue with factory ammo um, and I want to do some tests and I've never played around with alpha brass and compared alpha to Lapua and, and all that stuff. Um, so I'm going to do some of that. But in the past, I had had problems with some loading dies. And one of the problem just was I wasn't lubing it um, enough. And so occasionally I would get a case stuck in the resizing die and then trying to t take it out of the press uh, would just peel the brass and have it get stuck in there. And so uh, when you're doing loading stuff, make sure that you're lubing it correctly and you're making sure that it's clean so that the cases don't stick and that there's not shit in there scratching up, scratching up the brass. Now, different um, presses, I only have um, a single stage press, but different dies require different settings on the torque of the handle. And I didn't really know that. I, I watched a YouTube video that showed how to, in fact, it might've been uh, Jake Millard's, uh, Sam Millard's YouTube. I don't know. I, I watched a lot of his when I was starting off because he's got a lot of good information on his YouTube. Uh, but one of it was, you know, you, you, you take the handle and you take the collar and you put it down and um, you find that point where you can just feel kind of a little click where it sets, right? And then that's the height of the die. And I can't even remember what die or what particular setting this was. But I think it was um, the setting for the seating die for the bullet, you know, where you, where you tight, where, where's the setting vertically at, uh, for the die itself so that, you know, it's seating it consistently all the time. Because if it's too high or too low, the handle will come down, but it won't be putting the right amount of pressure top down. So anyway, the, the trick was, right, you find that point where it kind of gently clicks into place and that click you feel and you get to be familiar with how that click feels. And then you set the, the seating depth based on the stem and the, 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 the knob at the top and, and you do all that stuff. So I wasn't really thinking about that. But then I put in my shoulder die and I set the shoulder die the same way and, you know, was bumping the shoulder like, you know, <laughs> massive massive amounts and I didn't realize that setting the the full size full size die and bumping the shoulder and all that stuff was a different setting than the other one and it ended up inducing torque on the pins in the press and it broke the handle of the press because I was inducing too much pressure down repeatedly resizing you know thousands of pieces of brass because I was I was I was going off of a different die setting technique to one that um, put too much torque or force onto it 
And uh, anyway, so yeah, I broke a handle of a loading press because of too many repeated, uh, you know, strains on that thing. But again, coming from a guy who likes to rock climb a lot, it didn't seem like a lot of pressure to me, but the, um, the press itself felt otherwise. So get familiar with how to actually set up your press so that you're not inducing things to fail and make sure that you're continuing to lube it so that you don't get those dyes stuck. Now, lube is an issue that has come up recently in gas guns, and I've been talking with Adam Burt, and we're going to get him on the podcast to talk about maintaining and running gas guns in a field environment because Adam is an expert, and uh, he works in the gas gun industry, shoots really well, and he's familiar with the field competitions that I like to do that are often very, very filthy. Now, I thought there's there's kind of two schools of thought for these field matches. You keep your guns super, super lubed, Right, so that they're like dripping wet and got and oil is spraying everywhere when you're shooting them, and I think that I I'm probably completely speaking out of turn, but I think that's the mentality of like the three gun guys, you know, the action action fast shooting um, shooters. But then a lot of field guys say you want to run them as dry as possible, and I was leaning towards, uh, and I always have lean towards as dry as possible. So I think that with the loading die stuff, you know, I just don't like lubing everything up like crazy. And so I was just running it as dry as I possibly could and getting stuff stuck in there. Now running things as dry as they can, they don't get dirt and shit in there, but we live in a dry environment and you couldn't do that on the East where it's very humid or things would start to get, um, to get, to get rusty. But with all that fine dust, it collects in the lube and that has problems not only in your rifle, but also like your loading dies. It could scratch your your brass and, and as dust and debris collects in there. So you really do want to clean that stuff so that it's clean. Even though it's a hassle, you got to go through and clean all that stuff. So I, I opted back towards, okay, let's, let's lube this stuff up because I really want to be fast and accurate and I don't want to have issues. But by over lubing my gas gun, it collected a lot of dirt, a lot of dirt, and it created a ton of sludge. And it turned into this huge fiasco that revealed lots of issues with gas guns. And I want to bring in experts on gas guns to talk about um, some of those things rather than me. I can shoot them very well um, and I can win competitions with them, but I'm not good at maintaining them. And I don't understand how they work like somebody who builds them. So I'm going to get Adam on to talk about that because not only is he a Marine, he is a professional in the industry and surrounded by the very best gas gun shooters uh, in in the country. Okay, so I have Kestrel update, software changes. Those are all user error, wrong profile. You see that all the time. People bump their Kestrels and they put it on the wrong profile, right? That's a user error. I've done that. Um, okay, so here's, here's some other funny things. I have different types of ammo cases that I carry ammo in at matches. And sometimes... Um, you know, I, there, I can think of two instances where I traveled and I was going to shoot for a day or two before and then I was going to do a competition. So I brought training ammo and I brought competition ammo because I didn't want to load 500 rounds of competition ammo. I had training ammo, which I usually underload so I can have a little bit more powder and I go through it quickly. I may or may not anneal that brass. You know, I just kind of skip steps, but it's usually different and I just pump it out. And because I do my training at 100 yards on paper for the most part or had in the past, um, the nothing mattered as long as it shot a good group at a hundred yards, right? The SD made no difference to me. The, you know, the shoulder, whatever, like as long as it shot a good group at a hundred yards, that's all I cared about. So, but I had them in cases and I can think of one time in Texas and one time in Utah where I went and I had, um, the hard boxes of ammo and in my backpack, I had both of them. And the bags got knocked over. I picked up my bag that wasn't completely zipped down, and the boxes not only fell out of the bag, but all of the ammo mixed together. And so now I've got these two completely wildly different lots of ammo, and as a result, my scores went from pretty good to not as good because I've got ammo that probably has you know 100 to 200 feet per second different in velocity and different point of aim, point of impact, zero stuff. And there was no way for me to, to figure out which was which. And so obviously since then I stopped carrying all that stuff around with me. But, but the, other, the other one was, um, so that was once, that was in Utah. Uh, and that was the end of the second day. So it wasn't, it, it was halfway through day two. So 
like you know what whatever it was like, it was a good lesson learned like don't carry this shit with you um and it was stupid of me to have it uh but it was something that i did right so that that was you're right it's not you it's me like i fucked up lesson learned don't bring two hard cases of ammo that are different and then have them fall out and mix uh so the and then the other one was i brought training ammo and i brought competition ammo and on the training day, I shot my competition ammo so that on the competition day, I had my training ammo, and the training ammo just wasn't good enough to compete with. And that was a mistake that I made by accident, but there was nothing that could be done once I realized that the competition ammo was shot during training, and I'd spent a day, two almost two days, just shooting the competition ammo, and then I had you know, the only ammo I had left over was my training ammo, and the training ammo just wasn't good enough to be at that competitive level. And so, you know, too bad, so sad. That's not, that's not a big deal. But the big lesson learned here is maybe just make all the same ammo and train with your competition load so that you avoid any of those, any of those issues. Um, so that was, it's not you, it's me, but it's expensive to go to competitions and it's a hassle. And even though, you know, you, I don't necessarily identify with the place that I come in. I do identify with hit percentage and performance criteria, and it hurts to go somewhere and spend a lot of money traveling somewhere only to be measured with equipment that you didn't intend on being measured with. Now, on the one hand, if you did that on purpose, like, great, I've done that too, like where I went and was like, holy shit, I got kicked in the nuts. But that was the plan to begin with, and you know you could do better if you had other equipment. You went in knowing full well what you were getting yourself into. In this case, like you didn't intend on doing it. And so then when you do it, um, it's not cool and it was avoidable. Um, what are some other things that I see? I see people going heavy and light, right? Like a lot of competitors, the rifles are heavy and they have heavy bag fills and they have all sorts of stuff. But I have seen some people, you know, kind of blame the equipment for not being precise or not being quality when the light factor of their system um, exposes weaknesses in their shooting ability. Now, for me, I kind of chase that. So I chase making things lighter and lighter. And so that, like, my heaviest gun right now is about 15 and a half pounds. And my lightest gun is, is about 10 pounds. And so I kind of train and shoot and compete in that weight bracket because I've brought it down. But I've seen people jump from 20 pounds to 15 pounds. And all of a sudden, their system's no good. And it's, it's not that the system's not good. It's that they just haven't quite caught up with their fundamentals to be able to carry a lighter rifle. Now, the lighter rifles shoot and can be shot as well as the heavier rifles, but it takes training and time, and that's not the training and time that some people want. You know, if you have a heavier rifle and you want to get faster and more precise, then train with your heavier rifle. Doing a lighter rifle, you're going to be able to move it faster, but it's going to take you more time to get it settled and keep it under control. On the other hand, you know, if you've got like a 10-year plan like I do, um, it's worth investing for me the time to go lighter and lighter and lighter because the things that I want to do that I'm hoping pop up in the next 10 years require lighter rifles than heavier ones. And so I tend to lean towards the lighter field rifles, and but yet I maintain a certain uh, level of expectation that I should be capable of performing with that. And it might be different than I would with a 20-pound rifle. I just don't own a 20-pound rifle to be able to do that. But going too light is your fault because you can go heavier. And so people do, uh, sometimes you hear people frowning on, oh, you got this barricade bench press, like super heavy rifle. Like if that's what you want, that's freaking awesome. Just understand that, that you're masking some fundamentals that make no difference for the game that you play. But if you play a different game, it, it could have an influence. And don't blame the system at that point, right? It's on us to be able to understand our limitations. And if I really wanted to get into PRS, hell yeah, I would get a 20-pound rifle because the game is built around a system that basically requires like 18 to 22-pound rifle. If you want to be competitive, use the right equipment. Don't put yourself in a disadvantage and then make excuses. But it is easy to blame the system and not the shooter itself. Um, one thing that I see, have su I've seen, continue to see and explore that has some of me and some of you in it is the parallax issues on scopes and tracking and stuff like that. Parallax is a big deal. And I've gone left and right. Some of it was based on 
uh, talking with the guys at Leupold that say that they have a fixed parallax thing. So inside of that distance, it's parallax. And outside of that, it's focused. But looking at different manufacturers and different scopes, parallax is not the same from one manufacturer to the next. Nor in the distance settings on the parallax knobs are suggestions, but not only suggestions, but it could be misleading. Because if you get a scope and it says, okay, here your parallax setting is 200 yards, and it, you might have to have it at 100 and you might have to have it at 300 for it to be correct. But if it's correct, it's correct, right? So it'd be cool to see parallax knobs maybe have like what the Burris uh, knobs have where you could put marks on in the environment so that if you needed a quick setting, you could say, in this environment, here's my parallax settings, just like you would check your dope. Like you check your dope, you check your speed, you check your drop, you check your wind. Why not check parallax and mark it rather than having numbers where people see that and they say, this has to work at 500 yards. This is my parallax setting, but, but it might not be for you in that particular environment, right? The parallax is going to change with temperature, humidity, atmospherics, your eyes probably. I don't, I don't know enough about it uh, other than to know that every scope manufacturer has different parallax settings. And every environment I've gone to, it's slightly different. And having those fixed numbers misleads people. But also knowing to check parallax is a big deal because if you only shoot a distance and you come in and shoot paper, your group's likely going to be larger than it should be because you don't have your parallax set appropriately for 100 yards, and you can get a pretty big shift. Um, and I recently discovered that although I'm obsessive shaking my head when I get on my rifle to check parallax and clarity, I was doing it left and right and not up and down, and apparently there is a situation and there are phenomena that can have no left and right but induced up and down and, if, and no up and down but induced left and right. And so I'm trying to work that back into it. It's something that I didn't do until I realized that um, some elevation issues I was seeing was not coming from the ballistic data. It was directly coming from a parallax issue, or at least that's what I'm calling it. And it's because I didn't check the up and down. So check your parallax um, Another one that I have here in terms of impacts and shifts that you see, I, I take actions and action screws, you know, barreled actions, and I'll swap them from one chassis to another, and I'll swap them from a stock to another. And if I'm doing XLR to XLR, there is a difference between the Envy and like the magnesium chassis. And the magnesium chassis, they require a washer on the front action screw because it's a little shorter. And so if you put in the regular one, that action screw is actually going to go up and it's going to touch the action. Um, or it's going to bottom out and it's going to go through and it's going to uh, stick up too far. And so rather than having different size screws, they have you put in a washer. Now, you know, you know, okay, I have to do that if I'm going to go from the Envy to the the magnesium elements or something like that, which I love the element chassis. Um, I like it more than the Envy. And so I tend to shoot the element more than the Envy. But then I was taking like a Remington action and I put it in uh, another stock and another. And at, at one point, like if you just take the action screws from that action, they may or may not be compatible with the chassis or stock that you're putting it into to the point where you could have that action screw either not hit the action, which you would know because then you couldn't torque it down. But but worse would be, you know, you've got a barreled action that's zeroed and so you'd expect it to maintain it zero more or less when you when you swapped it from one to the next. But I, I saw a very accurate and repeatable like but but significant point of impact shift. But once it was in there, it was consistent. I could shoot it all day, whatever. And then I put it in another, and, but I'd have to kind of change where my zero was and hold over. And then I put it back in the other one, and it went back. But it was, it was way more significant than I would have guessed. And what was happening is the screw was passing through, and actually, it was passing through into the system, and, and you could actually like hit the bolt and... It was anyway, it was inducing torque in a way that was consistent and repeatable, but off. And that's not it, it wasn't necessarily I mean, you could call it a zero, but you could also say, like, you know, if you put something I've I've seen like a couple guys have something wedged between their barrel and the handguard of their rifle, bolt gun or gas gun, causing a point of inch, impact shift. You could change your zero to accommodate the fact that there's like a screw or a nut or a rock or 
you know, something like that, pressing up against your barrel, causing that point of impact shift. But if that falls out, now your zero is not good. I would, you know, I would say that rather than accounting for that, you want to make sure that you have the right action screw length for the right chassis. And they're not necessarily going to be just direct transfers from one to the next. Now that might sound totally obvious to you, but it wasn't to me. And I was seeing that shift. And then when I realized that that shift was coming from the action screw pressing on another piece of metal, causing a point of impact shift, I didn't, I didn't like that, even though it was repeatable, because you just never know. And if that screw was a different length, or it wore down, or it induced torque in a way that caused problems on the barrel, or caused other problems with something else, like, I, I don't like that, right? I want a system that's working right in a way that I would expect it, not kind of ma magically making up for a problem with the device, even though you could do that if you couldn't afford it. For like, and, and, and an example of that is I had a scope that didn't track correctly. In fact, I had, this is a couple of years ago, I didn't have a scope that tracked correctly. Well, at first you can't, you know, if your scope's off by 3%, let's say, or 4% or five, even 5, 6, 7%, right? If you're shooting 100, 200, 300 yards, you're gonna be hitting where you're aiming. But the farther out you go, the bigger that those gaps, of tracking are going to become, and you've got the ballistic qualities of your ammo and so on and so forth. So things get exacerbated at a distance. And so if you're doing tracking tests and you're expecting that precision, well, that's opening up as you go at a distance. And so what I was seeing is, you know, three, four, five, six hundred yards, like my velocity was accurate, but seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, all of a sudden I was getting more and more off. And so what I was doing is I was adjusting my BC to match that and everything was great. But the problem is, when, you know, here, in these atmospheric conditions, that was great. You know, I could go out, I could shoot, I could match it up to 12, 13, 1400 yards. You know, I would modify my BC sometimes pretty substantially to account for the tracking errors that were repeatable but off. And, and it would work okay. But when I went to a different environment, because I had adjusted the BC and it wasn't a BC issue, now the curve didn't match the drag that was happening and at a different velocity, different thickness of air. And so all of a sudden, my distance data was off again and I would have to readjust the BC. And that's when I realized that it was a scope issue, not a bullet issue. But for so long, I was obsessed with the fact that it had to be right because my ballistics calculator was telling me you know, this, let's match this to your curve. And you hear a lot online, like, okay, well, you know, your, your barrel's going to change your BC, your barrel and atmospheric, so it's going to change the velocity a little bit, the characteristics, so you have to tune it and modify it, and so on and so forth. I had heard that so much that I thought, okay, that makes sense. I would modify my BC based on drop at a distance, and it would match and be repeatable here, but it wasn't repeatable somewhere else. But it was a problem that wouldn't go back and forth between these wildly different environments, you know, that's not, you know, BC should be the BC. It reveals a scope problem. So if, if in the moment you have a scope and your data is not right, you could adjust the BC to match it in that environment, but that won't carry over to another environment. And if you try to do that, that's your fault, right? You can use that as a trick. There's tons of tricks, right? Like gun number's a trick. Speed drop is a trick. Um, you know, shit, the whole Tremor 3 reticle is a trick adjusting your BC to account for tracking errors in your scope is a trick and it works, but it only works where you're at when you do it, right? It doesn't carry over to somewhere else. And I want to learn what it takes to be able to go anywhere and have a system and data that matches that. And if I have to do a trick when I get there, fine. But I want to know that, that what I'm working with is the best information uh, from the beginning and not just doing tricks, thinking that what I'm doing is right rather than realizing that it's a trick and the real problem is the optic, right? So anyway, but that is a user error thing that um, is something that's traced back to, to the user and not uh, something else, right? That, that, that was a user, that was, that was, it, was, it was definitely me, and I didn't realize what I didn't, what I didn't realize. Um, another one that, that's common and that, that uh, even though it's not necessarily like gear being broken is like if the, if the wind's coming from the right and, and you say, okay, I'm going to hold right six tenths. I have tricked myself by looking on the right side of the reticle six tenths, right? Which technically means you're holding to the left instead of to the right. 
So knowing how you're going to be thinking about which way you hold with which direction of wind, it's not uncommon, actually, and, and you may not have done it, but some of you that are listening have probably done it, where you just hold the wrong direction, thinking, okay, the wind's from the right, and you look on your reticle, and you hold on the right side of the reticle. Or the wind's coming from the left, and you hold on the left side of the reticle instead of the right side of the reticle, because right, in order to hold into the wind, the target ends up on the side of the reticle opposite from the direction of the wind. And so how you communicate that to somebody matters, but how you communicate it to yourself matters too. And so at first, sometimes I would think, okay, I know it's coming from the right, and I know I'm going to hold, and then I think, and I'm thinking six-tenths, I'm looking at the reticle, and I'm like, okay, it's you know right six-tenths. And so I count six-tenths on my reticle to the right, even though that means I'm holding my crosshairs left of the target. Anyway, that was something that I had done on multiple occasions, and in retrospect, realized what the problem was, but I couldn't figure out why I had done it more than once. And the reason was how I thought about and phrased it in my mind when I was thinking and how I communicated that to myself. And so then I just changed that um, shot process verbiage in my mind and I don't hold the wrong direction anymore. Um, so that was a me problem, but it was a me problem that came up more than once. And it, and it was more of like, you know, how am I actually like translating what I feel like I know to an action, and that action was reversing. And so if you do that, um, that is a, that's a user problem, and, and it's a user error problem that is traced back to your shot process, right? Shot process and how you think about approaching and solving that problem. Okay, uh, so the auto info thing is a big deal with the Kestrel. The um, sling torque, you could torque. So if you, if you take your action, or, or not your action, your chassis um, or your stock, and you take it, take the rifle out of it, or leave the rifle in. And if you grab it with your hands with the buttstock and the forehand, you can twist it. Right? There's flex to it, and that flex is torque that could be induced into the system. And because your your action's mounted to this thing that has flex to it, there to a certain extent, um, if you torque that system, it's going to change the way the bullet. It flies right. Your point of imp you can you can get point of impact shifts based on that torque because it's gonna move. That torque is kind of an elastic torque that during the shooting of the bullet, it's not gonna be held static, right? I mean, if if things didn't move and torque and re require exact spec, I mean, if you could somehow hold that through the force of the shot without anything moving, like it would be consistent, but it's not because you can't do that. And so I guess that's the user error problem is understanding the equipment that you have. If you can induce point of impact shifts by putting torque into your system, you need to know what types of torque cause point of impact shifts and what trends you see with that because you, you otherwise you're going to blame it with, on distance and speed and wind and not the fact that you were inducing torque. And although people don't use slings very much, it's very easy to induce a lot of torque with slings and bipods. And people, I, I think, would benefit from doing tests on torque and influence that they have with the systems that they're going to use in positions. Because if you induce torque on your system, you probably can't hold that pressure constantly through the cycle of fire that you're doing. And as a result, you could get a point of impact shift, which, which really the answer is trace it back to being as neutral and consistent as possible. But some chassis do it much worse than others, right? Just like some gas guns do it much worse than others. And you need to know that if you load your bipods and you're going to get a, you know, a mill shift in your point of impact, like that's, that's a good thing to know. If you're really excited and you're like, okay, I'm, I need it to be stable, so I'm really going to load into these bipods. And what you're basically doing is loading in to get a really clear view of the fact that you missed by a mill, right? <laughs> and you don't want to do that, right? So you need to be able to repeatedly apply the same pressures over time and those pressures include torque and pressure and how you're using the equipment right that's why i often ask people about the cross body tripod hold that people used to do you see it with old older school sniper stuff like the cross body brace and the sling under the tripod to pull it down to keep it from wiggling and stuff like that and i think that when it comes to ultimate precision you know, i would have to see them do it in person but my guess is that they're not going to be able to be as precise as somebody that doesn't do that. You know, take the same level of shooter and you have one person like in, you know, under stress do the crossbody brace or the tripod um, sling, you know, attach it to your belt, pull it down, 
do all those bracing things. My guess is that person that does the crossbody, tripod sling, pressure, you know, super load into the bipod stuff, they're going to have more under stress point of impact shifts than the person that doesn't do those and focuses on being neutral and applying constant pressure neutrally across it. But, you know, we would have to actually do that test in person. But I would, I would go up against somebody that does that and can claim to be super precise. I would gladly uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with them and do those tests, me trying to be neutral and them trying to use those torque under pressure and, and see whether um, it was more, more accurate. And there's definitely more accurate shooters than me, but I've, I'm pretty consistent and I'm pretty good at being precise when it comes to that stuff. And I would love it. I would love it. Um, and I would gladly admit that I was wrong. But when I try to do that stuff, it induces point impact shifts. And maybe it's just because I didn't train enough or I'm not a sniper. So, um, you know, who knows? Um, let's see. When you're cleaning off your glass, if you use compressed CO2, um, you know, take your compressed CO2 and take it against, uh, up against something that you don't like and spray it for a sec and then grab onto it and you'll notice that it gets very cold. I've seen lenses crack because people froze their scopes uh, blowing the compressed air onto it. So don't do that. That is your fault, not the scope's fault. Um, let's see, lube, parallax, impact shifts from torque and pressure. That's a big, that's a big deal. Sling torque, it's a, I think it's a big deal. Uh, too light of a rifle versus too heavy, you know, you kind of want to be in your technical sweet spot and lighten up a little bit. But if you make a big jump, it's going to be a big deal. And the lighter you go, the more you have to pay attention to the old school rifle fundamentals. And the heavier you go, the more you can throw those out the window. And so just be aware of the fact that, you know, 90 degree trigger pull isn't the only thing that you need to worry about when you start having a rifle that's like eight, seven, six pounds. You're going to have to be on your respiratory pods. You're going to have to be stable. You're going to have to have a good sight. I mean, you're going to have to do everything perfectly in order to, to do a good shot with an ultralight rifle. And that's one of the reasons why it's easier to make a heavier rifle and say, fuck it, those things don't matter as much anymore. Because they really don't, because we have systems that can account for it. But part of what accounts for it is they're heavier. Right? And so... Um, that's that. But I do see there's a tendency for people to say, okay, I'm going to go to an event like Sniper Adventure Challenge. I'm going to go to Steel Safari or NRL Hunter. I'm going to go on a goat hunt or a sheep hunt and say, okay, well, I need to get, you know, I'm trying to build out a six pound rifle. And it's like, well, how, how much is your pack going to weigh? Well, I don't know. I'm going to take a 55 pound pack with a six pound rifle. Well, what if you, you know, I mean, shit, what if you had a 11 pound rifle and, and, and you, you just made your pack 50 pounds instead. Like, would that work? I don't know. I think sometimes people get obsessed with equipment modifications to the point where they're modifying away from being capable of accomplishing their intended goal. And so that's a user error. That's me, not you. But I think that that's one thing that I always harp on people no matter what is, you know, first you take the goal and you make sure that you can accomplish the goal with the thing that you have to the level that you expect it to or better and then backtrack everything else. And if you're going in the mountains carrying 55 pounds, the difference between a 6 and 11-pound rifle is nothing, right? I mean, it's 10%, so it's not, it's, not, it's not nothing, but it's insignificant. And if your hit probability goes up by adding 5 pounds to your rifle, take 5 pounds off something else, right? Wear lighter shoes instead of heavier boots. Exercise some. Lose some fat carry a little bit less something, you know, something that weighs, you know, maybe your stove, you can take, you know, distribute the weight of the gas or, or maybe when you're, when you're hiking in, carry a little bit less water, knowing that you could filter water when you get there because water weighs a lot. There's a lot of ways to shave off five pounds from a loadout that's 55 pounds and still have the equipment that you need for the job that you need to do and not just say, okay, well, I'm going to buy this super fancy ultralight rifle because a lot of the very expensive super ultralight systems that I've had, that I've seen that I've had a chance of shooting and getting my eyes on, they're not good. They're expensive, but they're really not good. And you can make up for it, not only with saving money, getting a little bit heavier rifle, but more repeatable and more reliable. And yeah, they're a little bit heavier, but so what? Like, um, that, Weight can be made up somewhere else where it doesn't matter. But if you take a light rifle that can't shoot very well in the first place and that is harder to shoot, 
you're stacking bad tolerances instead of optimizing for your specific outcome. And so think of the outcome first and then fit yourself to that outcome. But cutting shit out of your equipment that's going to be important potentially, it might work, but it's a gamble. And you can gamble in your favor by cutting stuff out that is less important, less critical to the skills at hand. So anyway, man, I've been talking a long time and I'm halfway through my list. So I'm going to cut this off and publish. It's not you, it's me, but I have a lot of interviews that I'm lining up. Some of them I have to just edit a little bit just because they're long and we talk about things that people you know, may or may not want to hear in between. We kind of went off on tangents. Um, but I have four interviews done and I just want to cut them down to under two hours, and then I've got some more topics like this, and I've got some cool updates, and I want to talk to you about some of the sponsors that are coming out of the show, and how I'm going to deal with that, because as you know, like, uh, hopefully you appreciate the fact that I just kind of say what I think, and that's not going to change, so it's not going to change how I even talk about their products, it's not going to change anything other than the fact that they're helping support the podcast, and I'm helping promote their product, not because it's the only product in that line, but because um, I like them and it's good. And I wouldn't stand by something or I wouldn't advertise, I wouldn't take somebody's money if I thought they had a product that wasn't good. Um, so so anyway, I'm gonna talk about that. And it'll probably be the first episode that I use their little, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little script that I write about their product and stuff like that. But I also wanna talk to it about what I've seen and what, you know, I'm gonna handle that and then we'll see, <laughs> they might decide to, end the relationship right there. But but I would rather be authentic and be myself and talk about things uh, in a way that, that was 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 truthful and allow me to continue to explore the curiosities that we could all improve getting better at shooting uh, and not, not seem like um, you know it's just a just a commercial or something that um, you know I don't I don't I don't believe in or something like that. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So until next time uh, send me an email, give me feedback. And if you want, I have, I have some user questions and some of them are really good and some of them aren't super exciting to talk about. But if you do have questions, uh, email me. If you're a subscriber, go check out the combined wind bracket stuff. We're adding some more things and pretty soon the target, uh, photograph update is coming. And then we're adding some clarification inside the system to show what the numbers mean and how it could help your training. Uh, but, but I love hearing back from you guys. So, uh, give me some feedback, uh, particularly if you're a subscriber. Uh, I tend to filter the emails preferentially towards subscribers because you know you're helping support this whole project in a good way. So thank you guys, and I'll talk to you soon.